Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So today, Taraj Parang joins the podcast to discuss his newly released book, Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame, published by McGraw-Hill, and within less than a week, a number one new release in crowdfunding on Amazon. Taraj is currently the president and COO of Serve Robotics, shaping the future of self-driving delivery. Serve designs and develops and operates zero-emission robots that serve people in public places, starting with food delivery. So first off, Torres, thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And let's go all the way back. So let's start off with Jackster, a startup you founded back in 2005, which brought free calling and texting over the internet to mobile phones. And after a few years, it was doing quite well with over 10 million registered users and successful fundraising of 20 million from top VC firms in Silicon Valley. But then the 2008 to 2009 recession hit. And in a very short period of time, it went from being valued at tens of millions to receiving an acquisition offer for under a million. And when this recession happened, there was very little investors that had any interest in either acquiring the company or fundraising it. What was going through your mind then? And what was that journey like? Yeah, and it probably was unfortunately similar to what a lot of entrepreneurs are experiencing today with the current economy. Economy can shift on you before, and it did to us. And we had only a year of runway left. In fact, when we went to our board and gave them that news, they looked looked back at us and said, nah, I think you have less than that. And we asked why. And they said, the venture debt that you raised, you can't touch it because unless you have a... a realistic way to pay back that debt you have to pay it back and so we had we had raised that money as a rainy day fund and unfortunately the rainy day came and we couldn't use it so we had only six months of runway left which was problematic because we didn't have any viable strategic options we had pursued single-mindedly growth by virality strategy and sort of shut out Pretty much every strategic conversation didn't really pursue potential acquirers or any anybody else. So, and we realized the hard way that those things take a long time and six months was not nearly enough. So we had one acquirer at the end of the day who basically dictated their own terms. And our alternative was to shut down or to basically sell the assets to this one acquirer. And they got it. Lots of hard lessons learned. Uh, as you mentioned, Jaxer was a very promising, successful startup. In fact, there were four startups in 2005 that started with similar missions, all of us wanting to liberate communications and basically bring free phone calls and text messaging to mobile phones. And the other three that started at the same year got 
significant acquisition offers and were sold at astronomic valuations, I might add, even for, by today's standards. But we couldn't because of that one strategic mistake. Now, in my next startup, webs.com, I tried not to make the same mistake again. So the first thing I did was to actually sit down with the leadership team and create our exit strategy. And that set in motion a series of events that ultimately led to a very different outcome within two years. We were pursued by multiple public acquirers, and we basically had the option to either continue to raise money or to sell. And one of us made an offer we couldn't refuse, so we tied the knot with them. And earlier, I'm glad you brought up that comparison to what we're currently seeing in the market today, because it is very similar. So currently, we're seeing Web3 transaction volume like NFTs and crypto increase exponentially in a very short period of time, comparable to the dot-com companies being founded in the late 1990s, where a high percentage of VCs want to jump into Web2 in the early 1990s. And then during the early 2000s, the sentiment shifted to not wanting to invest in companies with the dot-com in their name. And in our current economy, how have we seen the VC sentiment shift in the last 24 months? And then what are some important things for founders to keep in mind during this time period? Right. It seems like when the economy is good, everyone's focusing on growth. And even in public markets, people are paying premium valuations for companies and stocks that are growing the fastest, right? When the economy is not that great, uh, like today, sustainability, financial soundness, having cash flows, that becomes the real mantra and the modus operandi. So the investors look for that. Look, They look for, hey, which portfolio companies are on their surest path to profitability and sustainability. So what happens is that those portfolio companies that don't have a very viable monetization strategy tend to not get the attention and love versus those that do. And what happened with us, for instance, and I can't blame our investors, they started focusing on other portfolio companies. And we're kind of just left to ourselves to decide what we wanted to do. And it's completely rational when you have a portfolio of tens and hundreds of startups, and some of them are very promising and they can survive the this kind of economic winter. And then you have those others that are also promising, but they may not have a realistic chance to survive. You tend to focus more on those who, who can survive and double down on them. So today, of course, what you are seeing is that a lot of later stage funds who had actually deployed a lot of cash at very high valuations are really regretting some of those decisions and just basically reevaluating their portfolio. And they tend to be a bit more conservative. They're even talking about cutting staff, cut their activities. I would say don't expect them to make any new investments, in, at least in the near future. The earlier stage funds, though, they, they tend to be a bit more resilient and insulated. So I'm, for instance, affiliated with Pair VC out of Palo Alto and San Francisco, and and very active at PairVC. We're still investing because the early stage investors have a longer term horizon. They can weather out these storms a bit better. Yeah. And you made some excellent points, especially on the startup side. Now, you've been on both sides of the table. Like you mentioned how you're currently involved with PairVC, but even back in the early 2000s, you were a principal for early bird venture capital and a venture partner for another venture firm as well. So. 
since you have that unique perspective, what advice would you have during this recession for VCs? Yeah, I think it's very easy to fall into the sort of the negativity loop and sort of feed off of other folks' cautious approach, etc. But VCs, investors are risk takers, right? They, they, they kind of, they are here because they are trying to make good bets. And I would say economic downturns are perfect opportunities for investors because valuations tend to be lower. And those who do invest and aggressively sort of continue their strategy, I would say come out the winners and those who who are not investing when valuations are down and investing when valuations are high tend to be tend not to have the best strategy in my opinion so my advice is if you have the dry powder now is the time to invest for sure and in the book you've mentioned how to devise a, an effective ed- exit strategy you need to be able to openly communicate with co-founders key leadership members board members and major investors all at the least and i'm all for transparency i think that makes a lot of sense. But another point of view, when when I was talking to Zane Jaffer, he is the co-founder, former co-founder and CEO of this company called Vungle. And they sold to Blackstone for around 780 million a couple of years ago. And they were currently exploring either an IPO or exit strategies through selling it or having it be acquired. And the way he went about it is he decided to, instead of telling people. He kept it very close chested. So he didn't tell a lot of people because he didn't want employees to fear for their jobs or to start becoming demotivated. So when a startup is considering going through an exit, how can they balance between those two perspectives, being transparent and also trying not to give the wrong signals away? Excellent question. So my advice actually to entrepreneurs is that no matter what the stage of their startup or the size of their startup, they need to have an exit strategy in their back pocket. And having an exit strategy is just clarifying. It has so many benefits in terms of setting in motion a sort of things that eventually will open up viable strategic options for you. Now, you may never decide to sell your startup because you're cash flow positive, you have other prospects, et cetera, et cetera. But having the option to sell is such a value creation milestone for your for your startup. Even if you want to do an IPO, having acquirers at the door will help your valuation in the IPO. So you just there aren't very many things you can do as a startup founder to both mitigate the downside and optimize the upside. One of them is having an exit strategy. So the other benefits of having started thinking about an exit strategy, formulating it, and taking steps towards implementing it, is that you're not suddenly going into a sell mode. This is something that has always existed. And you make it clear to all your stakeholders, your leadership team, your investors, your board members, that, hey, this is this is like an insurance policy. We have it in the back pocket. We are continually courting and creating viable strategic paths for our startup and and so there is no that there isn't that risk you're not all of a sudden going into a closed conference room and drawing the curtains and putting slides on the board right so what happens though unfortunately most startups don't do this and they get into a flurry of activity either when they have an inbound interest from acquire or that they found themselves like we did with, with limited runway and having to sell their, their companies. If you start your 
serious exit strategy conversations and planning at that stage, it's too late. It takes years. I've been on the acquirer side as well for seven years at GoDaddy. It takes many years. On average, it took a year, more than a year on average for us to acquire a company. We had relationships for several years with many of them. So again, there are risks to when you actually enter into serious sale conversations that you identified. One of them could be that others find out about it and then their employees could be worried about their job and partners could worry about you being around and they may not want to dabble down on their partnership or pull back and work with a competitor. There's all sorts of risks that I identify in my book, but there's a lot of pros for selling your startup and having these conversations. So you have to balance those against each other. And there are best practices where you can actually mitigate against these risks and contain them. And again, I, I go into details about all of this in the book. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Absolutely. And you brought up a good point about people and leadership. And in the book, you talked about how, so for example, buildings and headquarters aren't the ones doing the deals. People are. And a company is generally most comprised of people. So is in terms of acquisitions, you saw many of your competitors being acquired a year or so before you were trying to find an exit strategy. And the reason they were able to occur so quickly was because they developed those relationships with those larger firms and they developed relationships as people. Now, over here at the podcast, I try to develop with business relationships with as many people as possible and just try to increase my surface area. And it's been very useful, especially in warm intros. So to get somebody very high up, if I would, didn't have those connections, it could take a few months, but with those connections, it could take as little as a week or two So or one to two emails. So what are some of the things startups can do to cultivate those relationships with people early? Yeah, so, and you're very wise. I wish I had I had known had this insight at your age. Things would have turned out very differently for me. So, but I had to learn the hard way. In fact, when I started my career, I started as a lawyer. I was very much focused on words because I thought that's what all ma that mattered. And then when I became a VC, I was focused on numbers because I thought that's what really counted. You gotta have a positive net present value for any projects that you take, right? And then. Once I kind of lost some more hair, I realized, no, 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 it's the people that matters. It's the relationships. So yes, got to cultivate those relationships. You cannot force a relationship into a breakfast coffee meeting or a Zoom session. You have to have frequent, recurrent interactions with someone. For startups, in fact, one of the best ways to create relationships is to talk to your, you know, first of all, create your wish list of potential strategic partners. Some of them could be acquirers. Then start building, finding warm introductions, as you said, to key decision makers, people that you think would be interested in the message or in the product or even your insights in from the market, depending on your product. So reach out to those people, find warm introductions. If not, just, just ping them with a clear value proposition as to why you're pinging them, what your true intentions are. You definitely don't want to be reaching out to someone when you're interested in selling. No one likes a sales call. So you want to say, look, hey, I'm just getting to know my ecosystem players and you guys are a company I admire. I wanted to kind of share some notes. People welcome that. I, uh, on the acquirer side, welcome those kind of nice gestures and folks wanting to build relationships. And there are multiple different places in a company 
then you can do that. You can, of course, start with the uh, highest executive, the CEO. You can go through a board member. You can go to a general manager, product manager, or the business development and corporate development team. Each one of those serves a different function. Again, I talk about it in the book, uh, but my advice is have multiple touch points. P- these big organizations a lot of times have very fluid org charts and people leave and come. And, and so you, you don't want to have just one single person that's your, your point of contact with a very major strategic partner. You, you want to have multiple. And then have a frequency, have a, uh, a like a cadence to your interactions. Maybe it's a quarterly, maybe it's every six months, but it's not enough to just once say, hello, I'm here. <laughs> you have to have a, a, a theme, something that you, you keep going back to. And that puts you on the radar. So when they are actually trying to make an acquisition, then they would think of you. One of the problems we had with Jaxer was that when those other companies were acquiring, they, we weren't even on the radar screen. And acquisitions are some of the most highest stake undertakings for a big company. And when stakes are so high, personal relationships become even more important because they want to have trust and confidence. And they want to know that you are someone that they can that can rely on because at the end of the day, if they can't, then that, that deal is going to be basically uh, very problematic. <laughs> Absolutely. And you made a great point on points of connections. It's something that Tim Draper has done when he was once called the number one most networked venture capitalist by Always On Magazine. They went through a computer model and found his name came up the most often and in those points. So he was connected with the most people. And it's a super important. And even outside of venture capital or entrepreneurship, networking is one of the most important things you can do professionally. Like 85% of jobs are filled through networking. That's according to HubSpot. And then 70% of jobs are never actually publicly listed. And that's according to CNBC. So regardless of where you are professionally, networking is always an important skill to undertake. And you talk also talked about the long game and playing the long game with momentum. So I think one story that comes to mind is the so you mentioned how not everything they're not overnight successes, but they might seem like it in the media. But one story that comes to mind is YouTube, where they almost failed multiple times out of a rat infested office. And it can be deceiving, which is why at the show, I try to dig deep into the stories and get it more true to life. But what should founders keep in mind when playing the long game at their startup? Yes, the the beauty of the long game, as the name implies, is that you have a little bit of time, so it's not so stressful. But the the flip side of it is that because you have time, you tend to, we tend to, as humans, prioritize what is urgent over what is important. A lot of New Year's resolutions by February, I think I just saw a statistic that by February, 70% of New Year's resolutions are... (laughs) Uh, forgotten and probably by <laughs> summer, all of them have taken their vacation already. So what you want to do is to have a way to stick to a long-term strategic plan. And what I've found, and I talk about it in the book in detail, is, mo- is kind of focusing on momentum and really understanding what are the components and things that you need to be doing. That really helps you sustain that strategy over time. A strategy or any kind of plan is a statement of good intentions, as Peter Drucker once put it. But in but it's it's the action that gives it life. 
And I would say momentum sustains it over time. So what does that mean? It means take a, like break down the task into very measurable incremental steps and just t- do that. It could be then networking. Networking is an acquired skill. I am an introvert. I was not a natural networker to begin with, but I took those small steps and slowly, slowly, I realized I'm getting better at it and I'm actually enjoying it. There, there are other things you, you need to build your capabilities as a company. And, and once you actually adopt the acquirer mindset and look at, look at your business from a point of view of what an acquirer would find interesting, there are things, there are things that you would find you could improve on. You can track and measure and improve over time that would make you more appealing to acquirers there are other resources that you need to bring i call them your deal team you need to kind of build your exit deal team there could be lawyers investment bankers advisors all sorts of cast of characters members of your leadership team you need to create actually leadership bandwidth because acquisitions are so time consuming that you don't want something to go wrong while you're in conversations with an acquirer. That was that would be the worst thing that could happen to you for, for your leverage. And speaking of leverage, there are actual concrete steps you can take to build up your leverage. So when you do enter into the short game, you actually have a strong leverage position. And the good news is that you can build leverage even though you're a small, tiny startup versus a big, giant, multi-trillion dollar company. You could still have leverage in those conversations. You don't have to take every price they give you, but there are things you have to work on during the long game to, to build up that leverage. So there's a lot you can do, but that's the good news. The bad news is that you have to actually work on it. Absolutely. That's a great point. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for the audience and startup founders who, whether that be in negotiating side, the acquisition side, the exit strategy point, what would be some of your top takeaways from the podcast? And then where can they learn more about your book? Yeah. So I would say if there's any one takeaway, I would say prioritize relationships. So build them. And even in your conversations, in your negotiations, always prioritize relationship. And that manifests itself in different ways. For instance, you don't haggle, you don't, you don't do a lot of things that, that could potentially damage a relationship. So that's one. The other one is focusing on momentum. So it's a critical, critical aspect of what I talk about in the book. And to get the book, you can find it on Amazon. It's out already. Or you can go to the website exitpath.net and it should be sold anywhere you purchase books from. The audio version is not out until I know a lot of listeners, especially to podcasts, love the audio version. That's not out until November, but it's out in Kindle and hardcover. Definitely. I'll have the links posted to the book in the episode description down below for anyone interested in checking it out. Well, thank you, Torres, for taking the time to join the podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. And for all the listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review down below. And Torres, it was a pleasure. I appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks for the great questions. Take care. Absolutely.